3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It's 7am on Tuesday the 5th of December. My name is Carnegie and in the studio with me today we have Fung and Ivka. Good morning. 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 How are we all? Good. Just wanted to wish... You both happy International Volunteers Day. How exciting. <laughs> Go us. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, I mean, I just speak for myself, but I'm sure you both feel similarly, but like volunteering, I don't know, it makes, just can bring so much to your life as well as, you know, the community. Um, obviously, we all volunteer here. Yvka, I know you've done lots of volunteering mm, before. Yeah, I, I started volunteering at festivals when I was 18, I guess. And I grew up in a, a small town that was very community focused that was like to have a festival, which is where I first volunteered. So I think you do get so much, but you get community by helping the community. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And I think also it because there's um you're doing it because you want to is there's a level of you know satisfaction that you don't really get from from doing other things Mm. yeah I think there's such like there's a lot of liberation as well with volunteering like you said kind of like you do it because you want to do it and there are so many different avenues to um yeah I guess explore different projects and different communities through volunteering and you just meet so many good people yeah Mm, Yeah. you meet like-minded people and it gives yourself like a a purpose outside of of paid work and all these things that we kind of have to continue to do and so there is that sense of you have to be at you know a paid job whereas volunteering is very much you taking a choice for yourself and then meeting other people that have made that same choice so exactly um, and 3CR is such a great place for it because, you know, you just know you're meeting people with similar values, mm. which is really nice in this day and age um, with everything going on as well in the world. All right, let's talk about what's coming up on today's show. We're going to start at 7.15 by just replaying the start of a conversation that I had with Syrian-Lebanese author and academic Ruby Hamad for Women on the Line um, yesterday's episode. Ruby uh, wrote a best-selling book called White Tears, Brown Scars, which is one of the best things I've ever read. Um, So I had the privilege of speaking with Ruby uh, about the historic dehumanization of Arabs and Muslims, particularly in the West, and how that's contributed to how uh, we are understanding and witnessing the genocide in Palestine. And after that, we'll be speaking with Dr. Tanya Kanyas, who is a Salvadoran-born uh, artist researcher based here on uh, 
Kula Nations, and she's joining us on the show today to speak about her work with the Nawat uh, Saturday School, which is run by Archiving the Present. Um, they're going to be part of the Languages and Community Festival, which is happening this Saturday in Footscray. At 7.45 to, I guess, mark International Volunteers Day, we are going to be speaking with 3CR's very own volunteer and engagement coordinator, Inez. So Inez will be on the show today to, yeah, talk about, I guess, her role um, as a coordinator of volunteers and engagement here at 3CR and also why um, volunteering is so important. And then at 8 a.m. we'll be speaking with Dr. Brandy Cochran, who is a senior lecturer at VU uh, and is also a researcher at the Forcibly Displaced People's Network, who have just released a report called Inhabiting Two Worlds at Once, which looks at the experiences of LGBT uh, refugees resettling here in Australia and how to improve their experience moving forward. And to finish up the show at 8.15, we're going to hear from Nevo Zin speaking at a rally in support of Palestine last Sunday on the 26th of November. Nevo is an anti-Zionist Jewish queer trans non-binary poet. Uh, And so, yeah, it'd be great to hear their thoughts from the rally. It's a jam-packed show as always. Uh, We will be right back with the news headlines after this. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. These are the news headlines for Tuesday the 5th of December. Israel has intensified its bombardment of Khan Yunus, causing death and destruction in the city in the south of Gaza. This comes as hundreds of thousands of Palestinians have fled their homes and have been displaced. Once home to some 430,000 people, Khan Yunus is now also sheltering many of the residents displaced by Israel's war on central and northern Gaza. The Director General of the Government Media Office in Gaza has told Al Jazeera that more than 700 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza. That was between Saturday and no, sorry, Saturday and Monday, so noting that that information is now a few hours old. Hamas says captive prisoner swap talks will not resume until the Israelis, Israeli onslaught in Gaza ends. Aid trucks carrying humanitarian supplies entered from Egypt on December 3, though their number and contents were unclear. The UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs reports. According to that latest report from the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, 
UN shelters in southern Gaza have seen a significant increase in communicable diseases such as diarrhoea, acute respiratory infections, skin infections and lice due to overcrowding. Hospital bed capacity across Gaza is down from 3,500 prior to October 7 to 1,400 amid a surge in people seeking treatment. Only one currently functioning hospital in Gaza has the capacity to perform complex surgery or treat critical trauma cases. 1.8 million people, which is nearly 80% of Gaza's population, have been displaced. And the average waiting time to receive half of a normal bread portion is four to six hours. At least 15,000 Palestinians have been killed since 7 October. A rally in support of Palestine will take place again this Sunday and every Sunday at the front of the State Library from 12pm. Northern Territory Health have confirmed that the region is currently experiencing a COVID-19 outbreak, as is much of the country. The Top Ends Peak Aboriginal Health Body has warned that the region is dangerously underprepared for the wave of COVID-19 infections currently sweeping the continent. The Aboriginal Medical Services Alliance Northern Territory, AMSANT, says low vaccination rates, little public messaging and a lapse in communication between hospitals and health organisations leave the population vulnerable to the latest outbreak. As the numbers grow and expectations of a COVID summer firm, AMSANT Chief Executive Dr John Patterson says the absence of communication that existed during previous waves is jeopardising the work of preventing spread. As the number of infections and hospitalizations increases, concerns for remote communities are particularly high. Quote, most of our remote communities are probably the populations that suffer from the most chronic illnesses, end quote, says Dr. Patterson. COP28 is uh, in full swing. It's the 28th annual United Nations climate meeting where governments will discuss how to limit and prepare for future climate change. This summit is being held in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates from 30th of November till the 12th of December. The president of COP28 this year, Sultan Al-Jabbar, has claimed that there is no science indicating that a phase-out of fossil fuels is needed to restrict global heating to 1.5 degrees Celsius, The Guardian and the Centre for Climate Reporting have revealed. Al-Jabbar has also said that a phase-out of fossil fuels would not allow sustainable development quote, unless you want to take the world back into caves, end quote. The comments are incredibly concerning and verging on climate denial, scientists have said, and are at odds with the position of the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres. In recent years, the Institute of Postcolonial Studies has become a cherished location for First Nations and POC scholars, writers and artists to connect, meet, organise and host events as IPCS members. Earlier this year, members called for IPCS to become a more democratic and transparent organisation. Rather than cede leadership to an elected First Nations and POC board, the current all-white, non-democratically elected board are trying to dissolve the institute and sell the IPCS building at 7880 Curzon Street. Follow the collective of dedicated scholar-activist IPCS members organising to prevent this sale at Save IPCS and Save Save Post-Colonial Studies, 
to read and explain her about what's happened until now and how the collective is organizing to stop the destruction of the institute. There will also be a public meeting on Thursday the 7th of December from 7 to 8 p.m. And there is an open letter as well that you can sign and um, support the campaign. We will link to that in our, as well as the Instagram handles in our show notes later today. And finally, you'll be hearing messages about this event uh, across 3CR this week. But this Saturday, December 9th, there will be a motorcade for Palestine. Uh, so on 3CR, there'll be a live broadcast from the motorcade for Palestine to build a wall of sound on the streets of Burn City to amplify uh, the voices for a free Palestine. So uh, meeting at Faulkner Cemetery at 8.30am, the motorcade will depart at 9am down Sydney Road with speeches and music broadcast live uh, through 3CR. So uh, if you can, jump in your car, tune your radio to 8.55am and crank up the volume and hear the calls for a free Palestine. Palestine um, throughout the streets. So this is supported by 3CR, Community Radio, Free Palestine Melbourne, Renegade Solidarity or Audio Force and Renegade Activists. Uh, we're going to jump into a song now. This is um, by Al-Sara, who is a Sudanese-American singer um, and songwriter. And uh, this is her track with the Nubatones. It's called Habibi Tal.
And that was Habibi Tal by Alsara and the Nubitones. Last week, I had the privilege of speaking with Syrian-Lebanese author and academic Ruby Hamad for 3CR's Women on the Line. Ruby's best-selling debut book, White Tears, Brown Scars, traces the role that white womanhood and feminism have played in the development of Western power structures. In this episode, we discuss the historic dehumanization of Arabs and Muslims in the West, how this has impacted the ongoing occupation and genocide in Palestine, and gaslighting as a tool for upholding white supremacist structures and systems. Here is the start of that conversation. I thought we could start with just talking a little bit about your book, White Tears, Brown Scars, in which uh, you examine the intentionally negative and one-dimensional portrayal of both Arabs and Muslims in the West. I was hoping you could talk to us about how these stereotypes were created and how they benefit white supremacist structures. Yeah, so these, when it comes to Middle Eastern people, um, Arabs in particular, these stereotypes go back many centuries. So the yeah, Edward Said, um, the Palestinian-American academic in Orientalism, gives an account of the interactions between Europe and the Middle East, which at that point, um, you know, it was called the Near East. And these uh, interactions uh, compelled a representation of that part of the world that had more to do with the people constructing that representation, i.e. the Europeans, than it did with the people of the Middle East. So the it was a very sort of self-serving representation in which the Middle East was constructed as everything that the West was not, by which um, I mean, or by which Edward Said meant that it was constructed in very negative terms as being barbaric, as being in infantile, uh, emotional, unintelligent, and uncivilized, i.e. everything that the West was not, and unpeaceful as well. And this sort of self-serving construction was repeated in all manner of, you know, texts, artworks, music, and travel, you know, travel writing. And it just became solidified. Sayyid describes it as a, like a, a almost like a, a, a theatre uh, in which what plays out is what the what Europe sees and uh, not what is actually there. So that's that's where it started. And it's probably important, well, it is important to state it, it is a form of racism, but at that point, uh, you know, so this is, we're going back to like pre-colonialism, pre-European colonialism. So at that point, it was more considered like a cultural lack that the Middle East had as opposed to what we consider race per se now, which is tied to this idea of of biology and inferior biology. It was very much considered a cultural and religious lack, right? So the the sort of the spectre of, of Islam that Europe had and very negative view filtered into their perception of the people that practiced Islam and that, and that spoke the language of Islam. Yeah, I think that one of the big things of white supremacist structures is this construction of some sort of binary wherever possible, where, you know, you position 
the East versus the West. One is civilized, one is barbaric. And this is something you explore, of course, uh, pretty in-depth in your book. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, can you talk a bit more about this and how this upholds these structures even today? Yes, yeah, so that, what I just described in Edward Sayed's work is the, 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 the foundation of the stereotypical and negative attitudes that the West more broadly now has towards the Middle East and towards Arabs in particular. What I discuss in my book um, with a focus on women but extending beyond women because, uh, you know, women are part of the society and um, that we don't exist separately too. And as you said, it's it's about binary. So in the same way that the, the East, uh, by which I mean in this context, the Middle East, uh, is was the constructed as the binary opposite of the civilized, peaceful, moral West or Europe. Women, uh, the status of women or the perception, the European perception of Arab women, Middle Eastern women, uh, was drawn from that. How I frame it in my book is there there are two time periods that influenced uh, or that shaped Western perceptions of Arab women. And these time periods are the, oh, actually women of colour more broadly, but we'll, we'll stick to Arab women for now. The, the period of sort of territorial expansion and acquisition where colonialism was in its earlier phases, where they're, you know, invading and seizing territory and so at this at this point I uh, was the was when the construction of women of color of Arab women as being quite permissive promiscuous um, easy and when you look at that it corresponds to this fantasy that the whole world was opening itself up um, I'm using that imagery deliberately they're opening itself up for the West to come and take it. And so that was then reflected in this perception of women as being animalistic in their lust. And so that was the that sort of the first, you know, few centuries or couple of centuries of Western or European colonialism. And so these are the sort of the, the permissive, promiscuous stereotypes. Then after colonialism was consolidated and the colonized began to be more organized in how they resisted. So, and that included the use of violent resistance. That's what, they, when the stereotypes and archetypes of violent Arabs, including violent Arab women, bad Arab women, uh, terroristic, um, again, irrationally angry brainless so if you look at these and so I'm talking about stereotypes like the you know the the angry brown woman and the angry black woman the bad Arab versus you know the the oriental harem girl right versus the you know the Pocahontas ideal in, in the Americas versus the Jezebel during slavery so these very different archetypes both demeaning both dehumanizing but serving a different function. The earlier one was the function, the function of consoling almost or, or justifying to the European mind, to the Western mind, that what they were what they were doing in expanding their territory and colonizing the world was actually in the best interests and was actually accepted and wanted by these inferior races who wanted 
the superior West to overtake them. And then the other stereotypes, the angry, violent stereotypes, were used to rationalise the resistance to colonialism as not coming from political resistance and, and the desire for liberation and freedom, but just coming from this irrationally angry state that these inferior races had. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think there's a single brown or black woman living in the West anywhere who wouldn't at some level um, understand the angry brown woman stereotype in particular in the workplace. I mean, mm-hmm. you do give examples in your book as well of lots of different women, but particularly Palestinian women who live in America, who talk about either being fetishized or disregarded and feel that, you know, there's no space for them in their society. And I guess this is a, you know, an ongoing example of this, these structures that were created. Yes. So these, I mean, absolutely. These, so these structures were created and consolidated over many centuries. And what's happening now, particularly with Arabs and even particularly with Palestinians within Arabs, is they exist at this this juncture of not just racism and orientalism but western i.e u.s political geopolitical interests so it it is in the interest of the u.s the state i mean the u.s administrations to perpetuate these negative perceptions and stereotypes of arabs because it works to justify their incursions and their presence in the region. So we we see, and I discuss this, this, or I touch it on it in my book, even though with other the representations of other people of colour, and I'm not at this point at any way saying suggesting that racism for everybody else has been solved, far from it. But the the initiatives, particularly in Hollywood, in pop culture, to represent people of colour in a uh, more flattering or even just a more humanised way is uh, a lot more perceptible than it is when it comes to Arabs who continue to be either represented very negatively or else just not represented at all. That was the start of my conversation with author Ruby Hamad at about the dehumanization of Arabs and Muslims in the West. For the full episode, you can go to 3cr.org.au slash women on the line. We're playing you another song this morning. This is by one of our favorite pop artists, June Jones, and this is her song called Hoodie Girl. Like I'm a hoodie girl Being a hoodie girl 
guess I'll just become a hoodie girl. I'll live my life like I'm a hoodie girl. Being a hoodie girl is beautiful to me. I'll live my life like I'm a hoodie girl. I want to feel good. That was Hoodie Girl by local pop artist June Jones. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, and we're now joined by Dr. Tanya Kanyas, who is a Salvadoran-born artist researcher based on the unceded Kulin Territory. Her work looks at socially engaged and community-led creative practices as sites of collaboration, modalities of resistance, as well as ways to rethink processes and recast institutions. Tanya joins us this morning to talk about the upcoming Languages in Community Festival, as well as her work with the Nawat Saturday School, which is run by Archiving the Present. Welcome to 3CR, Tanya. Hello, Yekpeina. Buenos dias. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I wanted to start by asking you more about your work with the Nawat Saturday School. What can you tell us about this project? Yeah, so firstly, Nawab is the language um, that was and is spoken um, before the colonisation um, from from the Spanish Empire. So currently, Nawab is the last living language of the first peoples of, of the area we currently know as El Salvador and also parts of Guatemala, Honduras. Um, and there are less than 200 native um, grandparents that speak the language. Um, there is a big revival happening also from, um, I guess, the younger generations on the ground. But I guess um, now at Saturday School, from the perspective of displaced uh, Salvadorians and Central Americans, is, is quite a unique project. We see it happening, um, I guess, digital, digitally and across different sites between El Salvador and um, what we now know as Australia. Um, but, yeah, now at Saturday School is, is, is a a group, a community group that sort of came together around um, local initiatives. And we kind of came together a bit spontaneously around um, uh, what was uh, the destruction of a community mural that was painted by young Salvadorian displaced children in 1990. And that that happened in Kensington. So a bunch of us sort of came together as a quick response to visit site and, and, and you know, think about memory and practice. And you can find some of those creative works on our um on our website, archivingthepresent.com. And so uh, NAWAP 
that day school is part of that constellation of, you know, it, it being a sort of a quick response, kind of sort of happening spontaneous, um, and, and us talking about what does it mean to be um, displaced on unceded country, what does it mean to think about language outside of the definition of, you know, Spanish um, um, when it comes to Latin America or Portuguese even, right? Um, and so it, it's part of a, a couple of initiatives that we're running um, at Archiving the Present. Amazing. Yeah, I think uh, what you said just now about what what does it mean to speak and learn a language outside what, um, you know, the colonised lang- uh, languages um, of the coloniser, um, such as, you know, Spanish, Portuguese, French, English, um, and why it is so important to work to not just preserve but ensure that um, Indigenous and community languages are thriving. Um, I, I wanted, I wanted um, if you could speak a bit more about uh, the importance of continuing this work here in so-called Australia. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess the other thing I want to highlight in relation to that about this project is that it is it is run and and you know the, the students, the participants, um, all of us. Uh, find ourselves um, in Australia um, through, uh, I guess, through waves of migration and specifically through um, the refugee humanitarian program, so forcibly displaced from these other parts of the world. Um, And that positionality is really unique because when we think about, you know, Latin America, often the first thing people think about is, you know, (laughs) music, food and and Spanish, really. And if we think about how accessible, I guess, the, the... Spain version of Spanish is to access here. You know, there's lots of people who want to learn Spanish. Um, and, you know, a lot of the students in the class are also also struggling to learn Spanish here. Um, you know, so I think it, it's quite a unique positionality to be like, okay, we're, we're, we're trying to speak to our grandparents and parents who maybe, um, uh, so who in, in which English is, is maybe an additional language. Um, so we're struggling in between like three different uh, positionalities and three different um, worlds, um, let's say, worlds and languages between Nahuatl, English and Spanish. And the class, um, you know, the, the class is run by um, by a teacher that's based in Tejutepec and La Libertad El Salvador. And and um, this teacher is, 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 is an incredible teacher, knowledge holder, but also the modality in which they teach is around storytelling and community. So... Uh, the approach is community-led and community-based and, and not just the mechanisation of language, which I think often happens when we think about learning language off-country um, and, you know, the way we think about, you know, even um, how you know, Spanish uh, is taught. And, and I guess maybe that's a good segue in saying that's the reason why we called it Nahuatl Saturday School, because a lot of us, um, uh, we didn't have access to uh, learning language in you know our, our formal schooling education growing up here, and and we often ended up at Spanish Saturday school. So in in, in sort of rephrasing it and recalling it now at Saturday school, um, and actually the classes are on Saturday at two two p.m. slash one p.m. for daylight saving changes. Um, that's kind of uh, I guess our way of, of speaking back. And I think you know um, you know that. The class being run and, and taken by um, students of the community and displaced finding themselves here really uh, makes us think about, 
yeah, as I said, what it means to be on unceded country, but also the historical and generational responsibility we have to learn language, to better understand ourselves, to better understand how to also support language revitalization that's happening locally here alongside land um, struggles for liberation. Yeah, and it sounds like such an important um, important initiative, um, run, like you said, run by the community for the community. Um, I think something that you said just now about you know the the modality of these language castles being taught through through storytelling is also so important it it breaks down you know the quote unquote like traditional classroom um so you're not just learning a language but you're also um relearning or connecting to um ways of being and culture um which you know sometimes is is not welcome or um, doesn't quite match with a traditional classroom setup and and ways of teaching so that's really great too um Tanya I wanted to end by um, just asking you about the languages in community festival um, that's coming up on uh, this Saturday um, so now what Saturday school will be present can you tell us a bit more about the festival in general and and what will be offered um, this weekend yeah, so now Saturday School is, is, is part of the festival, so we'll be sharing some of our um, Ecology of Projects. We'll also have a pop-up uh, library, so with texts in Nahuatl, Spanish and English. Um, and, and in terms of Language and Community Festival, um, it's an opportunity for us um, to gather. And, you know, there's other great collectives and artists doing incredible work um, that are also community-led, community-run and self-determined. Um, you know, um, Dr. Nook Library, for example, is also going to have a pop-up library. Um, the MC, Grace Vanilao, like, I think, you know, and, and also Dr. Vicky Cousins. Um, I'm really excited to hear from uh, the various sort of uh, language revival struggles happening in, in displacement, in diaspora, but also specifically located very consciously here. Um, and so those, 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 the responsibility of what it means to think about those things here. And I think that's what makes this um, festival really unique. And I'm excited because it's, it's a language in community festival. And I think that's the key, in community. You, you, you know, I kind of mentioned earlier, you can't just, uh, uh, language can't just be instrumentalised. It can't just be mechanised. It's, it's not just about the full stop and the comma here. There's like, so much more. It, it's, it's world. It's different worlds and pluralities that we're talking about. And that's why I'm excited about the festival. Amazing. Well, you've made it sound incredibly exciting. So we're we're um, super stoked to be able to to um, talk about it here in Three CR. Uh, Tanya, thank you so much for joining us on Three CR Breakfast this morning. It's been great to learn more about Nawat Saturday School um, and uh, making sure that the the um, indigenous languages c- continue to thrive um, even here in so called Australia. Um, and all the best at the festival this weekend. Thank you. Bye. So we just heard from Dr. Tanya Kanyas about the Languages in Community Festival, which takes place this Saturday, 9th of December, from 11am till 3pm. So just to give you an idea of what kind of um, activities and events are taking place, uh, there will be um, so groups um, from different community languages, Greek, uh, 
uh, Vietnamese, um, Nahuatl, as Tanya just told us. There's Hazara story time as well, um, activities like kite making. Um, there's also karaoke story time, which I'm very intrigued about. Um, she also mentioned that Nook Library, which is also um, holding a stall and reading corners there. So lots of things to do for um, the family and for the community. So if you would like to find out more about the program, you can go to languagesfestival.net. Because the Palestinian fight isn't just the Palestinians' fight, it's all our fight because it's a fight not just about land, it's about a fight for freedom. Everybody should be standing here today saying, free Palestine. Solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Bumbanja nation, my people who've never ceded their sovereignty. We should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, 8.55am. Maybe you're tr- uh, tuning in online at 3cr.org.au. Um, it's a bit before 7.45, so we're going to play you another song before our interview with Inez. This is by Kira Puru, and it's her latest track called All My Boyfriends. All my boyfriends, they have girlfriends, so I know they know. Need them. All my best friends, they got best friends, so they can talk when I don't meet their expectations. Oh, I know, I know, I know, I know. I said I'd rather be alone. I know, I know, I know. Please don't let me. Please don't let me go. Please don't let me go. Please don't let me go. I know, I know, I know. Please don't let me go. I know, I know, I know. 
That was All My Boyfriends by Kira Puru. Well, we are very excited this morning to speak with Inez, who joins us uh, on the show today to speak about International Volunteer Day. Uh, Inez started volunteering in community radio at Sister Station for Triple Z in Mianjin nearly 20 years ago and has had many other roles, um, but has been a volunteer coordinator at 3CR for a couple of years now. Inez has also previously volunteered at Girls Rock, so it's fitting that we speak with her this morning. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Inez. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start by um, asking for your uh, reflections on volunteering, given that today is International uh, Volunteer Day. So um, what do you think of when you think about um, the volunteering experience and why it's so important for our communities? Um, I guess I think about connection and uh, connecting with different members of the community. And it's such important work that is um, done by volunteers, so it's so great that there is a day to celebrate it. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's my initial thought. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we were speaking about that um, this morning or, or just before news headlines. We were saying how great it is to be able to meet like-minded people who have similar values. We also talked about, you know, the the grind of capitalism and the pressure to work and, you know, make make money is, is really can be quite um, intense sometimes. So I was wondering about your thoughts um, of the role that volunteers play in within, you know, capitalism where people um, are constantly being pulled away to, to do different things and, yeah, be quote-unquote productive. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, we've certainly seen the changes that the cost of living crisis has had um, throughout the volunteering sector, I think we've lost about maybe a quarter of people to the different pressures of trying to make ends meet at the moment. Um, so I think we've seen it, the flow-on effect of that is trying to create volunteering roles that suit the different needs of um, the various different people that can do those roles. So thinking about things where people can do them remotely or you know, coming in once a month or something like that. But I think what people find so beautiful about volunteer roles is that connection with people with like-minded you know values and um and uh, i mean especially at 3cr you really feel like you are working towards making society a better place and um yeah i think the 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 things you get from doing a volunteer role outside of you know a, a, a paid sort of capitalist role are vastly different and that's why we see so many people who are so dedicated and committed because those feelings are just you can't deny how how good it makes you feel and the friendships that you make and the community that you're building together so yeah it's really special yeah for sure um and i think what you were saying about trying to make um volunteering be more inclusive so that people don't have to physically be in the space um, and to be able to um, adapt to um, whatever situation they're in and utilise their skills is really important. You've been volunteering in community radio spaces for a long time now. Um, What drew you to community radio in particular? Um, I guess it's one of those really special places where uh, it kind of intersects all the things that I'm quite passionate about well especially through CR um like I love music and I love um politics and um progressive communities and I think just the diversity of ideas and diversity of people 
that you can meet throughout community media and just the importance of, you know, having a space where people can tell their stories and break down those barriers and, and kind of, um, yeah, it's just in, an incredible area that I think we, we are so, you know, privileged and lucky that, uh, you know, the volunteers who formed these spaces had such vision and, um, yeah, we can, I don't know if you feel the same way, Fung, but I just, I love um, being able, I think I, I'm really privileged to be able to work in this space and I love working with volunteers and I think it's undeniable when you walk into 3CR, the, the, the feeling of, um, oh, I'm with my people or like I feel comfortable here or, um, yeah, just knowing that everybody is kind of in there for the same purpose to make the world a better place is really special. Definitely, yeah, I think... Um your what you said about volunteers having a vision is so crucial i think to the um the success of so many of these communities um like you know at 3cr so many people are passionate about different areas of um you know such as music or politics um organizing the you know um organizing for the environment things like that so it's really great to see people um yeah, to be able to build something from not only their passion, but um, each person having their unique set of um, skills and, and capabilities as well. Um, and yeah, I feel like it's so great for to feel like, um, you know, the skills and interests and passions that you have are really valued in a space like this that aren't necessarily valued or encouraged in, in a paid role um, outside yeah. of volunteering. Yeah, and I always like to say to people as well, it's kind of a choose-your-own-adventure because you might join the station having one idea or, like, one set of skills that you can um, that you already have, but as you go along, you kind of find all these different parts of um, the station and, and volunteering that you might be interested in. And we are a volunteer-run organisation, so, you know, 400-ish volunteers keep the station going, so that's in every possible area that you can think about from you know tending the garden to uploading podcasts to doing reception so I kind of think that well at least in my experience and and um but I always like to say it to other people that if you might start in one area but think about like once you've had six months experience think that wow I'd really like to learn how to do a podcast or you know I'd like to learn how to do audio skills or whatnot and it's kind of a special place in that you are you know we have volunteer trainers that can take you through those things and you know you upskill and learn different things it's kind of like it's yeah um it's a special place in that as well that you don't just you're not stuck in one role you can expand and learn and grow um as the more you get settled into the place yeah, for sure. I, I think that's a great um, message for people. If anyone is interested in volunteering, it is very much a choose-your-own-adventure in the best possible way. Um, I, I also wanted to, I guess, quickly touch on the fact that, you know, volunteering doesn't necessarily have to be with um, a big, a bigger organisation. It could just be, you know, um, volunteering your time to help out, um, you know, your neighbour or, um, yeah, people on a more, I guess, interpersonal level, uh, right? Like it, it doesn't have to be necessarily um, being part of a, a big organisation in that way. It could just be in the small things that you do. Um, yeah, I was wondering if you could think of anything um, 
in your personal life or, or just what you've observed from people in the community, Inez, that's that's more volunteering on that sort of smaller level but equally important? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, taking your neighbour's bins out or um, checking in on your neighbours and that sort of thing is definitely like a beautiful thing to do. Or cooking, you know, if your colleague is friend like me is unwell, just make them a meal or reaching out to people. I think it's about staying connected with your community that might not, um, you know, necessarily be... Um, they might not be the closest person with you, but it's about caring for each other. And I... I've been reflecting on the, the rallies that are happening every Sunday. You know, so many of 3CR's volunteers are out there volunteering to make those happen as well and, and recording and, you know, setting up the sound systems and handing out flyers and, you know, different um, different events and different things in our lives where we just are so dedicated to making change that it really blows my mind how incredible our community is and how much work is done on a volunteer basis and... Yeah, it's just amazing. Yeah, it's a it's a very special community that we have here. Well, thank you so much, Inez, for taking the time to speak with us this morning. I think you have such a um, an important role, but an exciting role to be able to work with so many volunteers across the station. So, thank you for joining us this morning and sharing your reflections with us. Oh, thank you, thank you for the volunteering that you all do and making such a wonderful program every week. Thanks, Inez. Bye. Bye. That was the amazing Inez, volunteer coordinator at 3CR, speaking to us about the value and joy of volunteering in the community. Um, I don't know about you, but after (laughs) chatting with Inez, I feel like extra, I don't know, I have a lot more, yeah, I feel really emboldened now to just like go out there and do some things um we're going to play you another song now this is by um nam-based palestinian artist yara um, who we love here on the show um this is her song man hater which is which was released in 2020 with all my demons. 
Worth of my word is how I measure the weight of my wealth. Women of the world, if you're wondering, it's time to raise hell. Won't go quietly whispering, pretty happy, just risking it. Don't wage war at the glass boys on your roof. When they fall and shatter, the one to catch them is you. Sharpen your weapons of wit, fill the cracks in the fault line. Tell them you don't get to decide whether my body is mine. Uh, sister, I said we're singing the blues. Don't you know my heart beats the same rhythm as you? When you're complicit, then the misters make you dance so that tune Just playing under there is Man Hater by Yara. Uh, Dr. Brandy Cochran is a senior lecturer and researcher in criminology at Victoria University, a researcher for the Forcibly Displaced People's Network, or FDPN, and the first Australian registered LGBTIQ refugee-led organisation. Brandy is joining us this morning to talk about FDPN's inhabiting Two Worlds at Once report, which looks at the experiences of LGBTQIA plus refugees resettling here in Australia. Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast, Brandy. Thanks, Kaneki. Um Good morning. Good morning. Um, great to have you back on the show. Um, I thought we could start by just talking about the survey that led to this report. So we've spoken with you as well as Renee from FDPN here on the show before. Um, and FDPN did a survey in 2021, which was the first of its kind in Australia. Um, can you tell our listeners who may not be aware about the survey, the sort of questions that were asked and what data was collected? Yeah, no problem at all. So as you said, um, we undertook the survey in 2021. Um, over um, the course of several months. Um, and we collected data from, you know, people who are forcibly displaced and were resettling in Australia. So, as you said, from the LGBTIQA plus population. And this was a nationwide survey. Um, and, you know, again, as you said, there's not been one like this in Australia before. So really important to understand this experience because we were hearing a lot, oh, well, um, in the work that I do with FTPN, oh, well, we don't have any data on this. Is this actually a big population? So, um, luckily, I was invited on board early um, by Tina and Renee um, to uh, get this into place. So we asked questions, you know, about migration status, age, you know, those kind of demographic things you think of more broadly. But also we wanted to ask them about experiences of settlement. 
so we looked at a number of different um, pieces for that, um, thinking a little bit about you know mental health, physical health, education, employment access, um, then different kind of support services. Um, talked a little bit about homelessness, things like that, but then also looked just, um, distinctly at um, access, or sorry, not access, um, discrimination in these different kinds of services that people found. Um, we also looked at experiences um, of violence um, that people um, had both before they arrived in Australia, but also since they've been in Australia too. So we looked at a lot of different pieces. Um, in order to get a really actual full picture, because there's a number of surveys that ask questions of the LGBTIQA plus population, um, none of which um, were asking about, you know, visa status um, or, you know, if you were a refugee or things like that. And then on the other side of that, you had refugee studies that were asking questions about, you know, why are you a refugee? Are you, you know, you know, what's your visa status? Things like that. So we wanted to bring, you know, all of that together um, within that survey. Yeah, definitely. It's um, an important intersection and experience to understand, I think, for refugees here in Australia. Um, what were some of the key findings from the report, just as a kind of general overview? Yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I think we found, you know, that um, some of what we think of is that, you know, I think people often think once folks get to, you know, Australia, especially, you know, if they're refugees, that they're going to be having this kind of more positive experience um, when they're here in Australia. Um, but, you know, what we found is that, um, unfortunately, um, people were much more likely to experience, you know, violence, discrimination, um, different kinds of hate crime and things like that than obviously the average population. And, and that was, you know, that, I think that was one big finding that, you know, we were um, all a bit surprised about, um, especially around that, that violence that's occurring here, which was just so much more huge than it was for citizen populations or for LGBTIQA plus more broadly, um, sorry, people broadly. And so I think that's some of the kind of stuff that we found there, too. Um, we also found some interesting things around um, age of participants. Um, which I think there's often a lot of talk about how we need to focus on, on young people. Um, but we found actually there was a lot of um, people of, of a variety of different ages. Some of them obviously had been here for a while, but some who, you know, were able to, were actually not able to make that change to move um, or claim refugee status until they got a bit older or had to do it through a different avenue rather than just the regular refugee visa process as well. Yeah, I think um, that's I think that's really interesting with those intersections, um, because and and to hear that you know they were facing far more violence and discrimination than anticipated by them or or F, um, FDPN. Um, but I guess it kind of just thinking about it now as you're talking, it makes it makes sense because I feel like a lot of um, these people would also be facing cultural isolation from their own communities um, for being in the LGBT community. Um, and then on the other other side, they've got, you know, possibly language barriers or, you know, they're not necessarily feeling the same sense of belonging they would to the broader Australian culture as they would to their own specific cultures. Um, is that something that you found? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, 
you know, those intersections you just talked about there are so important because, you know, people, we would find people, oh, feel I feel comfortable in my cultural setting as long as I don't disclose my LGBTIQA plus identity or I feel comfortable, you know, in LGBTIQA plus settings, but not if I say that I'm a refugee. Um, and, you know, trying to find the, the overlaps of those um, spaces where people could feel comfortable being all of those things um, was something that we found was really difficult and why things that are peer-led um, where people can get together with other people like them were, were really important um, to people we talked to in the survey. They were, we found, you know, they're hiding parts of themselves um, in order to feel, you know, safe in, in community, um, which is, you know, a really, I think, another really interesting finding. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I saw as well in the report that there were some specific findings for trans people and women. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, um, yeah, we did two kind of short reports, but um, if you have a look at the website, you'll see both of those. Um, both of them, uh, the work was presented recently at two different um, conferences, one that specifically was looking at refugee women's outcomes and one that was looking um, at trans health more broadly. But we wanted to break down some of the findings so that um, we could you know, kind of share what was going on there with different kinds of communities. And so... I think the first one I'll start with um, is the one around uh, trans people more broadly. So um, about 27% of the total sample of the survey was trans forcibly displaced people. Um, so again, a high number, but a number that you know would reflect the, the population um, more broadly, especially if we're talking about um, refugee visas mm. um, or as much as we know about them. Um, and people, you know, being a trans person doesn't mean, you know, you're, you're one kind of trans, as they say. You know, it's, you know we had women, men, non-binary people, um, or other people had specific responses that they identified as another term to describe gender. And that's one thing we tried to do with this survey was making sure wherever possible people could fill in whatever, you know, they wanted to. Um, and we had uh, two intersex people um, in our survey. Um, and they were they also identified as trans as well. So I mean, it's important to kind of understand that people um, aren't just often the one the one thing. Um, people um, have multiple identities. And the most common um, visa type was the the bridging visas. Um, again, um, a lot of people um, were on were in similar um, visas as well, but they made up half of permanent visas. Unfortunately, the, the trans people um, comprise only approximately one-third of all people holding citizenship. So that was much lower than for other groups. So actually having citizenship and things like that um, was was different um, in the trans people who answered, you know, the LGBTIQA plus survey that we did today, which I think is kind of interesting. Also, we found that a number of trans people... Um, and compared to the rest of the survey, we're more likely to have been undocumented while living in Australia, which I think is another important thing when we think about, you know, delivery of services, access to homelessness services, access to health services. Um, it's important to understand that, you know, a large portion of people um, that had lived undocumented were also are also trans people. Um, just kind of thinking on that, I think, is another important um, piece that we'd want to bring about specifically um, in regards to trans people. And um, I think the other really important piece when we talk about trans people, and I'd say this reflects probably the broader population, is that their self-reported mental health was much was much worse 
um, than um, the other groups in our survey, the other um, folks in the survey. So um, even though those with permanent visas were better, uh, you know, reported better than average mental health, those with temporary visas were worse. But overall, still, when you controlled for those sorts of things, trans people were most were more likely to have, um, yeah, worse mental health um, outcomes. Or sorry, it's self-reported. So worse mental health than than other people in the survey. And I think that's really important again to understand. Um, the importance of that as well. So between that and then the, the considering the non-permanent, or sorry, being um, undocumented, I think those two things are really, really important to understand when we're thinking about um, trans people who might need access to services and things like that. Absolutely. That um, I can imagine, you know, in Australia, it's not uh, particularly accepting either for trans people um so i can imagine you know if you have all the other barriers of being a refugee and having an uncertain visa um in and amongst so many other things that you mentioned uh that would have a pretty um devastating impact on mental health um yeah. what, what were oh, some of the, what were some of the findings for women I might just do one more point oh, on sure. sorry, trans people, just because I think this one's really important um, for people to understand, especially in service delivery, is that we had three um, people, three trans people in the survey, trans men, say that they had um, had instances of female genital mutilation um, prior to coming to Australia. Mm. So there's been, you know, that's often a topic where people really want to talk about it and talk about supporting women, but actually there's there's more complications there um, than we think it is, but if we only target our understanding of, of FGM and responses to FGM to women, we're actually missing, you know, a um, an important part of um, people who could have, um, you know, who who sorry who, who had FGM before they came to Australia. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really interesting point, and you know, one of I guess the reasons that this survey and this report is so important. Mm, yeah, for sure. And I think also, um, if we want to move on to, to women a bit more, um, we um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, HIV focus as well. Um, and I think that spurs off of what we were just talking about, how it's often targeted um, to gay men or men who have sex with men. Um, but we actually found in our survey that, um, you know, the HIV, the, the people who self-identified as having HIV um, were... You know, um, sorry, of the people of, <laughs> um, of the people who who talked about this, that, that a number of them were women, um, one trans woman and one cis woman, and so they talked about this as an experience. Um, but then, you know, it's important to consider that we also need to think about the fact that um, you know, HIV isn't just a, a, a gay man problem. I think sometimes that gets forgotten in some of our targeted advertising and like attempts to support people um, in in um, in this kind of work. And that was one thing I thought that came up that was really important, again, to making sure that we create, you know, services that understand um, that things might be different among, you know, LGBTIQA plus refugees um, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, was there anything else you wanted to touch on that stood out from the findings? Um, I think it's just really important, um, I guess, lastly, was just to talk about um, women's access to GPs. They were the least likely to have access to a regular GP, um, and I think that's really um, important to consider, um, is that 
you know, they, their their health outcomes then become worse because of not having, being able to have access. And that can be because they don't have um, Medicare because they're on bridging visas. But it also might be a number of other reasons. So I think that's an important thing that we could look into um, and understand why that might be the case. And then I think on the last point was to think about um, we've tried to look at different kinds of types of violence that people had before and since their arrival in Australia. And women were the only cohort who experienced high rates of technology-facilitated abuse in Australia. And I think there's a piece here that could definitely use more research to understand um, you know, why that is and um, how that's being used against um, yeah, queer refugee women um, within Australia. Absolutely. Uh what is FDPN planning to use this? Uh, sorry, how is FDPN use, uh, planning to use this data to help improve services um, in the future? Yeah, um, great question. Um, we're trying to reach out to services, um, specifically, you know, different kinds of settlement services, um, to you know, to give them those, these outcomes. Talking about, we need more tailored services. We need more inclusive policies. Um, there needs to be language accessibility. Um, promoting mental health, those sorts of things. So reaching out to, to services and saying, here's the things you need to do, but also here's the things you need to learn, you know, anti-discrimination, anti-racism training. You know, we had a number of people who talked about going to services and, and, you know, feeling discriminated against, which is really, I think, quite an important finding. And you know, the other thing, you know, we're trying to push for for government um, I would say, is well, we need more data now that we have the first survey done. We need more data on this. We need more funding for research. And we need to think about some ways to help people to have better health care access across the board um, for this particular cohort as well. And that's some of the things we're hoping to make changes at a different level. But also, you know, FDAPN's main, um, you know, goal is also to bring people together. And so, you know, if you're an LGBTIQA plus refugee and, you know, you, need, you want to reach out to someone else who's like that too, you know, they, that they really kind of provide that peer network um, as well. So it's saying there's findings. It's saying we need to make changes at government and service delivery level, but also that, you know, it's important for, for connection in populations as well. Definitely. Um, yeah, I, I've just, you know, on 3CI here, we've, we've, you know, focus a lot on women's health and um, LGBTQI plus health and the lack of services and the lack of focus. And I think this report just highlights how much uh, worse that can be for somebody in the position of uh, refugees trying to resettle here in Australia with all the other barriers that come with that. So uh, really appreciate you joining us this morning, Brandy, and, and telling us about this report. We will definitely link to it in our show notes later today. Um, is there somewhere that you know uh, listeners can follow FDPN and learn more? Um, yeah, for sure. Um, FDPN has a great Twitter. Um, they do. They also have an Instagram, things like that. And you'll find that on the website. So with the link, people can click through to there, and it'll lead you to all of those different social media um, pieces as well. Amazing. Thank you for joining us this morning, Brandy. Thank you. So that was Dr. Brandy Cochran talking to us about FDPN's latest report on re- resettling refugees who are from an LGBTQIA plus background here in Australia. You can read the report at fdpn.org.au slash survey dash LGBTIQA displacement. 
FDPN has also recently partnered with Community Refugee Sponsorship Australia, or CRSA, to facilitate the community sponsorship of LGBTIQ plus refugees. If you're interested in being part of this community sponsorship, you can head to fdpn.org.au um, and look for the community sponsorship section to find out how you can help support FDPN and LGBTQIA plus refugees resettle in Australia. We will, of course, link to both the report and the community sponsorship program in our show notes later today. We will be right back with our final interview for this morning after this. This Saturday morning, December 9th, help us build a solid wall of sound for a free Palestine. The Motorcade for Palestine assembles at 8.30am at Faulkner Cemetery for a 9am departure down Sydney Road. Be there in your car with your Palestinian flags flying and tune in to Community Radio 3CR on 8.55am. Crank up your radio and wind your windows down and let's turn the whole of Sydney Road into one solid call for a free Palestine. Speakers will be announced on Instagram at renegadesolidarity.audioforce. Supported by Community Radio 3CR, Free Palestine Melbourne and Renegade Activists. Every Sunday outside the State Library, Victoria, there is a rally in solidarity with Palestine. We're going to finish up today's show by playing you a recording from the rally held on 26th of November. This is the speech given by Navo Zizin, an anti-Zionist, Jewish, queer, trans, non-binary poet, author and educator. Uh, Navo was speaking in support of Palestinians' right to freedom uh, back on the 26th of November. Here's that speech now. From the river to the sea. Palestine will be free. From the river to the sea. Palestine will be free. I think it's really important to reiterate what Tasneem just said because uh, after this so-called ceasefire was called, Israeli soldiers fired bullets, live bullets, on our Palestinians fleeing from their homes, which by the way, is a war crime, just like they did in 1947, preventing people from going back to their homes is not only a crime against humanity, but it happens every single day in Palestine, across the West Bank and in Gaza. The Zionist regime will not stop until Palestinians are displaced, murdered, or not allowed to return. That's why it's so important to stand in arms with our anti-Zionist Jewish brothers and sisters who recognize the Zionist regime's crimes. So our next speaker is Nevo Sizin. Uh, Nevo is an esteemed educator in transgender liberation, um, an award-winning author um, in about, uh, about gender, and a TEDx talk um, speaker, and also an anti-Zionist Jew. I'm speaking to you today as a white Ashkenazi Jewish settler colonizer 
on violently stolen or unrewarded on land. I want to recognize the violence we are seeing now is the violence it takes to tear an indigenous people from their country. And I want to recognize the history of this very same violence here. I honor and pay respects to elders past and present and all First Nations people. I also hold a legacy of settler colonialism on Palestinian land. And to this and the ways I am a beneficiary of violence on multiple continents, I am accountable. While I have the mic, I also want to mention an initiative called Defect for Palestine, which is connecting McDonald's and Starbucks workers who support the boycott with new jobs. So if you're a business with a spare job, or you're a worker at Macca's or Starbucks who wants to leave, go to defectforpalestine.com to register and there will be flyers passed out out the front of those businesses as well. On every front line, there are queer and trans people who know what it means to be witness to our own suffering and the ways this opens our hearts to witness others who know what it takes to fight for liberation at any cost. As a Jewish, queer and transgender person, I have received more vitriolic, queerphobic abuse in the last almost two months for speaking out for a free Palestine than I have in my entire career as a transgender educator. There is no transgender liberation no gender euphoria, no gender affirmation truly and deeply possible without the abolition of nation states, police and prisons. Without indigenous sovereignty, land back and First Nations leadership and healing. Queer Palestinians exist and they are losing their lives, their families, their ambitions, and their futures. I want to prioritize their voices and share some stories throughout my speech. These were anonymously shared on a website called Queering the Map. Quote, I don't know how long I will live, so I just want this to be my memory here before I die. I am not gonna leave my home, come what may, my biggest regret is not kissing this one guy. He died two days back. We had told each other how much we like each other and I was too shy to kiss him last time. He died in the bombing. I think a big part of me died too. And soon I will be dead. To Yunus, I will kiss you in heaven." Quote. A militarized nation state can never be a liberatory place for LGBTIQA people. I resent that there is a huge pride parade on stolen lands a few hours away from an open air concentration camp. Shame. That does not make me feel proud. I'm not fighting for Israel to ask people's pronouns before carpet bombing their entire neighborhoods. When I am told to go to Gaza and see how safe it is for me as a trans person, 
They are right that I would likely be killed immediately, but it would be at the hands of Israel's incessant and indiscriminate bombing and attacks. I recently saw a post of an IOF soldier holding a rainbow flag with a star of David standing on the rubble of a destroyed neighborhood in Gaza and I have never felt more ashamed or disgusted in that moment to be Jewish or to be queer. But I will not let my identities be co-opted. I say, how dare you fly this flag on the grounds of massacred children? How dare you paint the land pink with the blood of martyred innocent people? This is not my Judaism and this is not my queerness. Quote, during the Palestinian Nakba, my grandparents were forced out of their land to Lebanon. Later on, my family immigrated to France during the Lebanese Civil War. The only thing my grandpa got from the house before fleeing was the key and a picture of him and grandma in front of their house. He would always talk about Jaffa oranges, his house and the Mediterranean Sea. I grew up wanting to know who I am, where I'm originally from, so in 2017, I decided to search for my grandparents' original house in Old Jaffa. Long story short, with the help of Palestinians living there, we found the stairs that used to lead to my grandfather's house. We found the house. We found the lighted window, which was once a kitchen window. As a queer Palestinian, the only time I felt angry and broken about seeing a pride flag was when I saw it flying on my grandparents' house on my stolen land. Shame. Shame. To finish, I want to share an excerpt from My Jiddo Fled Palestinian Genocide So I Could Be Free by Leila Lak Makled, published by Autostraddle and read with permission. Quote, on Trans Day of Visibility this past year, I posted a photo of me after top surgery talking about what it means to be trans. This is what my Jiddo said. We see you and love you as you are. My Jiddo fled genocide by Israel in 1948, and I get to be free as a transgender person with access to things like gender-affirming care and community in 2023. My Jiddo always tells me he is proud of me for just being me, and I truly believe him when he says that. He has endured so much, and to see his grandchild live in such a loving... We've just been listening to a snippet of a speech from Nevo Zizan speaking at a rally in support of Palestine on the 26th of November. If you'd like to hear the full speech, you can go to 3cr.org.au and listen to the most recent episode of Solidarity Breakfast. And with that amazing speech, uh, we have reached the end of our show. A quick rundown on what we had on the show this morning. We started off by listening to a snippet from my conversation with author Ruby Hamad from yesterday's Women on the Line episode about the dehumanization of Arabs and Muslims in the West. We then spoke with Tanya Kanyas, who is a Salvadorian-born artist researcher about the Languages and Community Festival coming up this Saturday, the 9th of December, from 11am to 3pm in Footscray. 
Then we spoke to Inaz Talik, who is a 3CR's volunteer coordinator about World Volunteer Day today and the joys and value of volunteering in the community. We then spoke with Dr. Brandy Cochran, a researcher at the Forcibly Displaced People's Network, about their most recent report called Inhabiting Two Worlds at Once, looking at re- the experiences of resettling LGBTQIA refugees here in Australia. Uh, as always, stay tuned to breakfast for this week, and uh, we will be back next Tuesday.